No one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. We have a massive power and it's the power to say no. They, they put all these words on these flies and it means nothing. It's, it's, it's garbage. We're all going to die! <laughs> Doctors are gaslighting patients. He keeps silent then this is what's going to happen. And they'll make us silent. I would rather paper cut my eyelids than have an issue. <laughs> <laughs> we are one people, one flag, one Australia. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined again by Adam Zara. Now Adam, a uh, big week last week with the Honourable John Ruddick. Uh, how'd you find that episode? Honestly, the more that I listened to John speak, and there was a few, I've been to another event as well with the uh, a branch launch that I had out southwest Sydney. You know, I kind of lean more towards the libertarianism side of uh, things, just a little bit. I mean, oh, no, I'm not an anarchist. Oh, no. I'm not an anarchist. I don't believe in anarchy, but I do, I do, um, I do believe in a lot of. I've had conversations today with a previous guest, actually, that we've had on the show from MoneyLink, Brendan. Um, I can't remember what episode that was, but he came down from Newcastle and I had a bit of a chat with him. And, you know, he he's kind of like believing that he's full-fledged libertarian. And, um, you know, the principles of libertarianism is, you know, fairly good, you know, low government, no fees, no taxes, you know, low taxes, like all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's all it's all the right things. I'm, as I you're said, being, I still believe being in... You're converted, um, Adam. You're being I, no, I'm not converted. I still believe in law and order, though. We're going to um, we're gonna have to wash off the orange. <laughs> Sorry, some, we're gonna have to wash off the orange and paint on some blue. No, no, it's all good. I still, I still think, um, you know, I still think there's, I think there's a place for actually a lot of um, like different political parties and different ideologies. Obviously, not communism. I think we should ban that. If we, if we should ban anything, we should ban communism. I think, right, personally. Um, but yeah, but it's, um, it was really good listening to John, and um, I like John because he takes on, he takes, you know, he took, you know what I liked about him. He, he took on board as soon as I said, you know, mentioned smart cities in the last episode, that it doesn't stand for like, you know, intelligence. It's, you know, self-monitoring and reporting and all that kind of stuff or whatever it is. He's like, oh, I didn't know that. So, you know, I know that he, I can, I just feel that, you know, he'll go back and do a bit of research and have a look into it a little bit. So I think that's important from our um, honourable members and leadership, you know, to be able to like just hear some, you know, random thing that somebody says and go wait a second that does make a bit of sense i might have a quick look into that at least at least it feels like that you know they're taking a part of you know into your you know into what you're seeing or perceiving and what's going on also you know there was something i noticed on our website as well Stephen. so what's this um buy me a coffee thing about i haven't um you know i noticed this on our page and i'm like what's this buy me a coffee so uh I was contacted by a good friend of ours, Adam, from the crasfiles.com. Uh, if you don't know anything about the crasfiles, check out the crasfiles.com. Uh, Adam and I have been on that show before previously. I've been on four four times on his podcast now. It's a really excellent podcast. But he contacted me and he said, you guys are doing some great stuff with the ex-candidates, but you need to uh, get on Buy Me a Coffee. Now, I don't even drink coffee, so it's not about coffee. But this is if you if anyone out there wants to support us in any sort of way, you can go on here and I guess buy us a coffee. Uh, you can choose whatever uh, you know way that you want to support us, whether it be five dollars or whatever. Uh, and it all goes to help us, I suppose. And there's also a membership on here as well. Uh, if we do decide, uh, or sorry, if we do get enough people 
uh, wanting to be members. Uh, we, we'll start doing some extra content, behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, maybe uh, some live interaction between Adam and I and our members. Uh, so anyone that's interested, you can head on to the link. I'll put it in the chat, buy me a coffee link, and if you want to support us, feel free to. I know, Adam, we've done some uh, street talks in the past, so yeah. I suppose if people want to sign up to the membership, we can do more of the street talks and we can do some extra interviews with different people. Uh, so it's just something we're trying out. I mean, if it's there, we might as well give it a go. Yeah, I mean, if, if it doesn't take off, then, you know, just leave it. Right, Stephen? Sorry? Got to be in it to win it. Have a go. That's right. That's right. So, and, and with Adam and I, we're gonna say uh, we're gonna say yes more than we say no. So, uh, see 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 what happens. Tony's saying street talks are great. Well, Tony, chuck in chuck in a membership, and we might get some uh, extra street. We'll come talks. and do a street talk with you, Tony. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so uh, so that's that's buy me a coffee. Um, I'll chuck, as I said, I'll I'll chuck the link in the chat. Uh, we're also live streaming now on uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, and Rumble. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, if you are on Facebook and uh, YouTube, you're able to comment. Uh, so please post your comments in the chat there. We'll be able to read them out during the during the show. Now, if you do have questions, please keep them short. I know a lot of people were yeah. posting these big, long paragraphs in the last one sentence. One sentence questions that we can read and that are legible. Yeah. We're trying and, um, to pay attention to what our guest is saying, plus what Adam's saying and what I'm saying, and plus all the other chats going on. So please keep it short if you are going to post a uh, question. Um, there you go. Guess there, there you go. Sam, Sam Buno. <laughs> I guess he's already getting some love. But on tonight's show, I mean, uh, this is this is a little bit of a special show. We normally we're coming live on uh, Sunday nights, but this is a, a double header this week. Uh, we thought we'd do an extra episode just on the recommendation of our guest. But uh, I just want to let you know about tomorrow night we're going to have Jamie Coots on to talk about Bitcoin and money. Now, this is uh, it's not just going to be gonna about be a good Bitcoin. one as well. This is, really, this is something that I've wanted to do for quite a long time. So we're going to have Jamie on. He's, uh, he's highly recognized as one of the best market analysts of, of Bitcoin. So we're looking very much uh, forward to that. And next week, uh, we've got some uh, interesting guests as well. We're going to have a doubleheader next week as well. So I'll let you know more about that throughout the week. But we're going to have Dr. Paul Oosterhaus and Chris Mart uh, Martinson. I don't know too much about Chris Martinson, but uh, he's highly recommended. And, um, and uh, we'll see that coming live next week. But on Tonight's episode, this is going to be interesting as well. Now, we have Richard Storch on. Now, uh, Richard is uh, a good example of uh, persistence. And if, if, you, if you're willing to persist enough with me and bug me enough, you'll get a, you'll get a gig on, on this show. So, uh, Well, Stephen, Richard, Richard's got a really good, good angle on his, on his um, episode tonight, on this episode. Um, I think it's really interesting, actually, because you're comparing parallels between the um, the referendum and the Battle of Britain. Exactly. So there's some two different, um, obviously poignant marks in history. You know, one was World War Two and the Battle of Britain, and one was with uh, the referendum in Australia just you know a few weeks ago. So um, this is actually a really exciting topic that um, you know where where we're going to see you know what kind of parallels and things like that uh, um, show in like leadership and whatnot. So um, no, very excited to have you on, and and it's going to be I think it should be a good topic to talk about. Yeah, thank you, Adam. I was interested in your discussion about heading towards libertarianism 
<laughs> well, you either head towards libertarianism or authoritarianism. There's, you know, it's a pretty binary type of choice. So I, I note that you still have an attachment to law and order, but that's okay. There's no such thing as a pure libertarian. So um, good luck with your journey. That was the comment. Actually, that was funny enough. That was that was a comment that um, that um, my mate Brendan from MoneyLinks um, on a previous episode said. He goes, "Libertarianism is something that will never come to full fruition." No. So, but it is um, probably uh, it is a good. But he, from his point of view, he goes, "It's a it's a good way to head." And um, I guess you know. I don't like being told kind of like what to do and when to do it. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you know, that's just one of those things. But, um, yeah, as I said, I still believe there is a place for law and order, and I guess that's why I'm still not quite on I'll libertarian. I'm, I'm a very aberrant libertarian. I get called a communist all the time. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> He's a centrist, <laughs> centrist libertarian. I knew there was something about you, Richard. I just knew there was something about you. <laughs> anyway, um. Steve, you, you actually um, came up with a very good comment um, because you, you said that after the referendum, it's like we're all, we all feel like we've dodged a bullet and what now? And so that, that was one of the things that led me to start comparing, comparing this to the Battle of Britain because I always like to try and find a, a military history simile for what, whatever's going on. Because there's usually a, a very a very stark um, comparison to be made, so I, I thought to myself, well, how, how did the RAF feel in October 1940? Because they should have been crushed. Yeah. Um, and in, likewise, in the referendum, we were so completely outnumbered, we should have been crushed. Um, and that, that's just the reality. And um, remember what what uh, Tim James said that in campaigning theory. If you're outnumbered three to one, you've only got a 50-50 chance of uh, prevailing. And if you're outnumbered six to one, you might as well go home and forget about it. Well, we were outnumbered sort of a dozen or two dozen to one. Yeah. So that, those are the kinds of odds which which make it a much a much more compelling comparison. Um, so I think I think one of the interesting things is. Matthew Sheehan was was instrumental in melding a whole lot of dif- disparate sort of groups into one sort of central central movement, which supported the the leaders in in prosecuting their case. The leaders being Jacinda Price and Warren Mundine. So Matthew Matthew Sheehan is the head of Fair Australia and Advanced Australia, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean. That wasn't really a thing until he got everyone else to agree to centralise the, the the movement, as it were. So, if you like, he was he was like the Churchill of of the of the of the movement. But he 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 lacked some of the excessive behaviours of Churchill. I'm, I hasten to add. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Churchill needed people around him to moderate him and prevent him from from uh, you know going off and. And sort of doing wild things, um, so that that that's one of the the key things. But the, the RAF had had terrific leadership as well in terms of um, Air Chief Marshal Dowding and Air Vice Marshal Park, and they very they they performed a similar role to 
Bryce and Mundine in that they kept the, the central strategy in place and, and motivated everybody to get behind it and stay on course. Um, I think probably also they, they supplied their own inspirational leadership as well. So that was pretty, pretty crucial. Well, that was interesting that you said that too because, you know, reading the notes and stuff that you've put out there, you know, we had um, Warren Mundine, Jacinta Price, and, you know, they were obviously at the forefront of the of the, of the No campaign, but they stayed mm. on message. So it was, all, it was basically if you don't know, vote no. It's a divisive referendum. Um, it's, it's divisive, you know, it's dividing Aboriginals, it's dividing Australians, it's dividing everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you made an interesting point that um, that's not what happened with the Yes campaign. So you uh, had no. <laughs> no, so you had Anthony Albanese saying, "Oh, you know, it's just a a light, you know, change, and it's only a minor change, and it's very, you know, basic, and it's one pager and all this kind of stuff." And then you made, made mention about you know the likes of Thomas Mayo, uh, Marsha Langton, and those people, and then they went off topic, didn't they? To what? Um, Albanese was saying. Yes, well, the German strategy was working very well in the Battle of Britain, and until they they had a little accident where they a few a few pilots bombed London, supposedly in error, and that led to a massive retaliation, well, um, an insignificant retaliation really, because Churchill ordered the bombing of Berlin, which accomplished very little, except that it enraged the Germans to. Uh, switch their, their strategy and bomb London. So uh, I think you can compare all the elitists and activists speaking out of turn to bombing London. I think, I think well, that's, that's a very apt comparison. <laughs> Before we get too deep into things, I think we do need to be clear that we're having an adult discussion tonight and a little bit of an historical discussion, but in no way are we comparing the deaths and the suffering that happened during the, the Battle of Britain to what happened during the referendum. But outside of that, politically and mm. uh, maybe even, uh, you know, strategically, we're going to make the comparison. I, I, I agree with what Adam said. The reason why we decided to do this was because it was a unique, uh, a really unique concept that you've come up with, Richard, so we do want to explore this. But I suppose for people that aren't familiar with World War II history and maybe specifically specifically the Battle of Britain, I'll just give you a, a few dates just to put things into perspective. Now, in September 1, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Uh, the Soviet Union also invaded Poland, but uh, the French and the British uh, declared war on Germany. Now, from that period, there was a little bit of a phony war. Not, not too much happened between the sides. Uh, It led to October 6th, 1939. Uh, Hitler actually made an offer of peace towards uh, France and uh, Britain, which which, which was rejected. Now, that led to the Battle of France. That commenced on the 10th of May, 1940, and lasted until the 25th of June, 1940. That's where... Germany swept through Belgium and into France uh, around the, uh, was it the Maginot Line, Richard? Uh, that uh, France was, uh, France, that was a heavily fortified area that they were defending. And anyway, the, the Germans went around that through Belgium and went into uh, into France and pushed the, the British and the French back to Dunkirk where the, the, the British uh, evacuated. Now we can talk a little bit more about that uh, 
later in the show because that's more of a historical thing. Uh, Paris was occupied on the 14th of June. And then from the 10th of July, the Battle of Britain started. So that was uh, the first time in history where it was predominantly an, an air war. Uh, it was it was fought in the air, and what basically what the Germans were trying to do was soften up the British, uh, take out their air force so they were, they could commence a land invasion, and uh, and then later on there was the Blitz also. We can we we can talk about that. So that's just putting things into a historical, um, uh, I guess uh, concept so people can understand what we're actually talking about tonight. And I guess mm-hmm. everyone's familiar with the referendum as well, but. Uh, I guess, Richard, the first question is, um, after the British were successful in defending um, Britain from the from the Luftwaffe, which is the German Air Force, uh, you were saying that that's a similar feeling to what we're having now, right, where we dodge the bullet, and they're saying, well, well what is what is the next the next step from this? Well, Historically, what happened was it wasn't a great victory. It wasn't even seen as a great victory. It was just seen as as avoiding a, an annihilation, really. So what happened then was that Germany decided that they'd already done enough to Britain and they were free to continue and expand the war, which is what they did. Not you know, Six months later, they attacked Germany as they attacked uh, Russia. So... I, I liken it to the culture wars because I, I can't see any 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 reserve um, from the left about pursuing the culture wars in terms of the disinformation, misinformation laws, um, you know, closing the loophole, labour laws, you know. They seem to be very keen on continuing on the course that they're on. I don't, I don't think they, they feel that anything's really changed. Um, so that, that would be my my comparison, um, and and you actually asked me about this. You said, "Well, what happens? What happens after this?" And it's just a, a continuation of, of the path we're on, I think. So you're you're making the argument that the closing the loophole legislation, which is moving casual workers onto more of a fixed. Sorry, what, it's taking like the gig economy, like people that want to do Uber Eats and Uber and DoorDash and those sorts of jobs that you can just log on to an app and do it at any well, time. Any, any, any casual worker sudden, suddenly uh, gets caught up and taken into, you know, the the uh, full the um, permanent employee status or part time employee status, and and I mean, I'm, I I. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's like casual workers don't join unions, so there's an obvious motivation involved. So Australia's got 3 million casual workers. I don't think they're going to be terribly happy about having their whole way of life disrupted. Maybe they like being casual workers. And then, but, it and also then... affects, but it also affects um, trades as well, such as sole traders and stuff like that, because isn't it all about having to pay holiday pay as well and, and all those kind of things. So what happens is um, some people would forego um, the benefit of holiday pay in the sure. in the order of um, yeah. earning a little bit more money per hour. Sure. Look, so, I mean, we saw how well work choices went in 2007. Maybe this will be the Labor Party's work choices. Hmm. Yeah. Couple Maybe with it'll that be that... like only attacking Russia. And, and coupled with that, you got the misinformation and disinformation bill as well. So you'd say there's two fronts there. Yep. 
lots of things happening. So yes. So, so um, the referendum was like the tip of the iceberg. You think? Well, it was just the first battle, or maybe it was one of many battles, but it was the first one where where there was no success. I, I think we can say that there was no success on the on the part of the antagonists. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, it was almost like the first. Um, it was almost like the because it, it was like the first loss, wasn't it? Because that's what um, I believe the Battle of Britain was the first loss that the Germans encountered during World War Two. Well, let's call it a reversal. Okay, um, I, I don't think you could say it was a victory because um, the only the only thing that prevented the Germans prevailing was the fact that you know they made a mistake in terms of their strategy. Um, you could even argue that they had some tactical success in terms of their previous strategy succeeding. So it's you can you can mount arguments either way, but the the referendum. Um, if they'd had a different strategy, it probably would have worked. If they'd had, say, an eight-week campaign instead of more than eight months, that would have helped them bring, bring, uh, mobilise their their forces and their advantages to much greater effect, and it would have it would have stopped the the freelancing of of all the all the activists if they if they'd had a concentrated campaign. I mean. In, in military doctrine, um, if you want to take an objective, um, you've got to have three-to-one superiority of forces. So in the Battle of Britain, the Germans had five-to-one. In the referendum, probably, you know, it was... 20-to-one. 20-to-one, you know. I mean, that's they should right. have won war with us. Well, that's, that's another right. con- that's another uh, concept that you've come up with, which there are parallels, resources. So yeah. after Dunkirk, the British had to leave a lot of their equipment on the beaches of Dunkirk t- to be able to evacuate safely. Uh, so they were really behind the April, and it was Hugh Dowling. So maybe speak a little bit about Hugh Dowling and, and his role where he was saying, let's not use so many fighters during the French campaign because we're going to need them for the Battle of Britain. So it was really taking the limited resources that they have and using them as, as effectively as they possibly could, which is, you could argue, the same thing that the No campaign did. Absolutely. Um, there's a very direct comparison because um, Hugh Dowding was under constant pressure from Churchill to support France by sending more and more fighters over there. And the problem was they were getting cut up because they, they didn't have secure bases in France. So... Dowding basically resisted Churchill's force, which was not inconsiderable. And Churchill threatened to fire him, of course. And Churchill did fire people quite regularly. So, you know, he was he was not a, a cuddly, friendly playmate. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Dowding, Dowding basically had a, an extremely proprietal attitude towards his pilots, and this is the big thing. They could always replace the planes, but they couldn't replace the pilots. Yeah. Um, and and what he, what he was focused on was was making sure that when the RAF engaged, they engaged on their terms, and that's very difficult to do when you're defending because the attacker always has the option of deciding where he's going to attack and concentrating his force. So if you're defending against that, how do you defend against that? It's a constant conundrum. So so what what Dowding did was he empowered his subordinates 
if you can call them that, who are the up there vice marshals who are running running the defensive groups to actually maintain their strategy of just hitting German formations in, in small attacks and conserving their forces and rotating their forces as much as they could, which was very difficult because the Germans had reserves but the British didn't. So they stuck to that strategy and avoided getting entangled in, in an engagement which they couldn't win, which was a large-scale engagement where they would get overwhelmed and, and, and uh, suffer much bigger casualties. So if you're comparing that to the No campaign, well, it's very similar. We, you know, Sheehan and, and Price and Mundine basically avoided getting engaged too much on, on the terms of, of the Yes campaign. They, they tried to make the, the campaign on their terms. And you can analyse that in any way you like. But they, they decided how they would defend against what was, what was being thrown at them. And I, and I saw Warren yesterday and he, he looked like a million dollars and he said he felt, he felt that he, he was really supported by all the people on the ground and that, ga- that, gave, um, that gave them all a tremendous sense of purpose and energy. It was quite interesting because a lot of people that lived through World War II in, in Britain said it was the best time of their life because of the unity that they felt um, and, and the way the whole country was just united in this struggle to, to overcome this, this, this threat to humanity, to, to, to world, world civilization. And um, I, th- I think that's something that's, that's very rare in our society, but it's, it's like it, it seems to have made an outbreak um, in this instance. So that, that would be my answer to your question, Steve. Yeah, I feel like um, it was kind of like that, What just touching that point on unity, I feel like that um, a lot of different people from a lot of different parties, especially on the um, on the no campaign, really put their differences aside, obviously between, say, you know, One Nation, Lib Dems, um, even between the Liberal parties as well. Like, you know, um, they put their differences all aside or politics aside and kind of all banded together and said we've got a common enemy and this is what we have to beat. So I do agree with the comparison there. I think that, you know, on the ground, right, there was a there was a, a form of unity, you know, like, you know, like people that I've stood against in um, polling booths and now I'm shaking hands with and we're helping each other out. It was actually really, really, it was a really good feeling. It was pro- This was probably the best. I've done two campaigns um, politically now and this is, I would put this as my third one, and this was definitely the the best one that I, I have done, I, f- I feel, the most successful one as well. So, okay. the, um, you know, the likeness, is, the likeness is, you know, that comparison's fair, I believe. Mm. Yeah, I think so. So we, we talked about doubting, but um, what about on the opposite side now? Uh, we don't want to compare anyone to Nazis, <laughs> right? But... <laughs> But Laurie Oakes came out this week and, I mean, growing up with Laurie Oakes, we always knew he had a left slant to him, but he, he tried to remain impartial and uh, he tried to, he was always very professional, but he's come out this week and called uh, Anthony Albanese an incompetent dill. Uh, <laughs> do you see a correlation between, I guess, the incompet- incompetence of Albanese 
and the German leadership at the time, especially the leadership of the Luftwaffe? Um, not really, because um, Hermann Goering was a, a hero. He was a World War One fighter pilot, multiple ace. Um, he was personally incredibly courageous. Um, I would I wouldn't just describe Anthony Albanese as having any of those qualities. So um, I, I I don't think you can really make that comparison. But I think maybe in 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 the sort of the aspect of triumphalism, vanity, avarice, uh, meanness. Yeah, I think we could go there. But you know, it's a different personality type. But what about overall strategy? If we talk, about, if we if we're going to call someone incompetent, mm. it means that they really have no idea what they're doing. Now, did the Germans have any idea what they were doing? Yes, absolutely. They had, they had a very clear plan. They they had a um, a four phase plan of destroying Britain. Uh, the first the first part of that was to attack the radar stations, which didn't work because. But could you but could you argue uh, could you argue that it was hobbled together quite quickly? Because my understanding is that the success that the Germans had in France, they just expected. Oh, precisely, it, it, it was put together very fast. Yeah. But you've got to remember that the German German leadership was very very good. Um, in World War Two, um, that was one of their biggest biggest advantages. It's not just the the figureheads like Goering; it's it's all their commanders were incredibly able. So they didn't expect to have to fight Britain. They expected Britain to fight because Britain was was beaten by every possible measurement. So they had nothing. In, in the same way, in the referendum, um, I, I think that the S case weren't prepared for a fight because they just expected that we would see their point of view as being unassailable. I mean, why would we fight them? I mean, they were right and we were wrong. And but it, couldn't you argue that... It wasn't very complicated. But couldn't you argue that the Germans felt the same about the British? That the British would, that's what I'm would saying. See, yeah, the, the British would see, hey, we're going to have to surrender here. Let's make peace with, with Germany. Yeah. And then Germany would say, okay, well, we don't have to, you know, they're just going to capitulate eventually. Oh, but Whereas, Germany needed Britain's resources and, and, and they needed they needed Britain's acquiescence before they could continue on. So they, they did need something from Britain. What happens if it was – sorry, go, Stephen. Well, what I was going to say is what I'm trying to get to is Albanese came out on election night and said – uh, the, the you know the Labor Party recognises the Aboriginal people and the First Nations blah 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 and and as leader of I'm paraphrasing as leader of the, the Australian Labor Party we commit to the Uluru Statement in full. Yeah. Did, was that a plan or was that just a spontaneous thing? Oh, I, I feel I feel I feel great. I feel fantastic. I want to come well, out well, like Bob well, Hawke well, and announce something like we're going to end poverty and I'm just going to make this grandiose statement that's going to be the first step of my leadership and the rest of the Labor Party in the background going, whoa, hang on, we're not ready for this. And some well, well, who, who would know? Because Albanese is so glib and shallow all the time anyway, who would know what he was thinking, if he was thinking at all? But it's, it's like he did expect Peter Dutton to say, yeah, Alba, that's a great idea. We'll go with you. What a great idea. That's what yes. he expected. Because, again, he's so glib and shallow. Well, he was dealing with Morrison, so Morrison probably would have. Well, if he, if he was dealing with Morrison, maybe it was a chance. I don't know. Um, just on the point of leadership and how, you know, bumbling and foolish and stuff like that, you know, and you were saying that, you know, I think that the comparison I'm making is that, you know, the Germans, we know Hitler made 
many tactical mistakes with the way he ran his operations, even though it was quite, quite like they were strong and they had a lot of victories up front real quick. Um, but we know that, um, you know, the generals and the people under um, Hitler seemed to know uh, were more experienced, i.e. that fellow that you're talking about who was the um, the World War One veteran and he was a um, an ace and all that kind of stuff. German Goering. Um, yeah, Goering. So, yeah, Goering, that's He's right. He's not a good example, but but um, some someone like Kesselring would be. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but, the Germans had lots of great commanders. I mean, but maybe Lola, it was Manstein, they had heaps of heaps of great commanders. In the, in, the yes camp, in the yes campaigns kind of camp, mm. it was kind of like like a fool leading other fools, though. Like they didn't have the generals or the people on the ground that were kind of like you know um, experienced or advanced, i.e., with the contradiction of the the party line. I'm saying this mm. is just a minor um, implication. Then you had you know yeah, that's a good point. the likes of Thomas Mayo saying. It's time to yeah. pay the rent, and then you yeah. had Marshall Langton yeah. saying everyone's a racist, and if you don't say yes, you're a racist, and it's about treaty. Yeah, I mean there was no leaders, there was no good kind of leadership or structure from the start. I agree. Um, they 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 all got in each other's way. They had no clear direction or plan or anything like that. Um, they just thought that, yeah. You know, again, I, I come back to the point. That I don't. I don't think they really thought that they would have to try too hard. I thought that they. I think that they. They thought their case was so compelling and so righteous and so pure that everybody else would just agree with them when they when they finally sort of woke up and realised the true reality. So, but it was in fact it was the opposite, wasn't it? Because the longer <laughs> the longer it went on, the worse yeah, the it went for them. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. So, so with 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 the with the plan. I mean, the German plan to, to conquer England was 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 three threefold or fourfold. So they they tried the radar stations. Then then they stopped the coastal convoys. They tried to get the RAF to engage them on their terms. The RAF refused. So then they went after the RAF on, on its airfields, and that's when the and that was working. And that's when the critical mistake happened. The Germans bombed London by mistake and. Away we went with the with the change in strategy, which which prevented them from winning the battle. They should have won the battle. The RAF was falling apart. It was, it was at, at, right at the point of collapse, uh, at the beginning of September. How much was? Sorry, you, you go, Adam. We've got yeah. a comment from Graham here, and it's saying Germany had a very structured leadership from the beginning. The allies allies were far less organised. The Allies were mostly concerned with finances, hence a lack of cohesion. World War II was not like the movies. I agree with all that. Absolutely. Um, and by, the, and by, the Allies, the Allies, by the way, just quickly, I'll, I'll, put the, I'll put the link in the chat as well. So anyone that wants to call in, I mean, you can be like Richard. Richard is a former caller. So if you want to call in and contribute to this conversation, uh, click on the link. And uh, and uh, you can do it on your phone. You can do it on your laptop. Uh, whatever you whatever you choose. Please just don't come on here and be defamatory or, or use foul language or anything like that. But please be welcome to to join us in this conversation. But sorry, Richard, you can continue. Um, one of the other interesting things is that you know the Battle of Britain was was Germany's first reversal. Up to then, they'd had nothing but success, and I, I think that's a very very good um, comparison to the culture wars. Up until the referendum. The left had never had never really had a reversal. 
this is the first time that they haven't they haven't got what they wanted. So I think I think that's a, a very very big comparison, and and there's there's no reason why the left shouldn't have won this battle. They had everything. They had everything going their own way. Numbers, resources, finances, they had everything. Yeah. Um, what was it that what woke people up to it then? If they've got this huge, uh, re, all these resources behind them, what was it that people said, no, 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 this doesn't feel right? There was a fundamental duplicity. You had Albanese telling, telling this sort of nice story about what it was really all about <laughs> on one hand. And then you had all these maniacs talking about what what the real consequences were. Paying the rent. There was a a complete duplicity going on. And it's like, how could people miss that? You know, it's like you can't say one thing to one person and another thing to another. And, I mean, what what Albanese should have done was was crack down on all these people straight away and just say, you've talked out of turn, I don't support you. Um, and we're actually going to stop and reevaluate this whole thing and postpone the whole process and go and realize that he couldn't get a referendum up and all he could do was legislate. And, and that was Bill Shorten's advice to caucus, not not to not to try for a, a constitutional reform, but to just um, legislate it and give everyone a chance to look at it for a few years, the voice. And um, and go for reconciliation. Well, in in saying that, Richard, why not legislate it in, kind of work out the nuts and bolts of it, and you know work out all the kinks and stuff, mm. and let the people see how it would operate, and mm. then go for the referendum, maybe as a as a second term initiative. Well, Bill Shorten was in, in absolute agreement with you. You know, that's that's mm. what he that's what he suggested, and okay. obviously his suggestions fell on deaf ears, and so obviously then he leaked it to everyone in the press that he thought could help him. Do you I'm think? Sure um, back. Do you think? <laughs> do you think Anthony Albanese like panicked towards the end of the to, towards in the last few weeks and started? No, he's, like... he's 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 not a panic kind of guy. What what happens when he's under stress is he behaves to type, which is that he becomes shallow, vacuous, nervy and in, insubstantial, right? So that's where he goes. He becomes a flake. Um, and and uh, that's after he gets narky and gnarly and stuff like that and tries to fight. But when, when, he, when he's actually losing, he disappears into flake, flakedom. So that's why he's such a, a completely useless leader. Do you think... Um just talking about the numbers and how we know that, um, you know, doubting, um, quote, uh, quote um, our young men will have to shoot down their young men at a rate of um, at a rate of five to one. Yeah. Right? So that's, yeah. that's a numbers kind of thing that we were talking about at the very start. Yeah. And then do you think that um, we know that, um, you know, Britain had some very good pilots um, we know that Germany started, you know, they had their pilots but were trained and they had experienced pilots through the Spanish wars and stuff like that. So the, the, the Germans yeah. came in quite strong. But then the the few that um, the few people that were camp like I was like arguments say campaigning on the no side, mm. you know, there was a lot of I would say, you know, at least 
what makes a veteran candidate? You know what I mean? There was a lot of candidates on the ground for the for the um, like conservative side of politics, for the right side, you know, um, that had or now had run a few campaigns. I myself had run two campaigns. I know that there was a few other people who had run two campaigns um, mm. as well. Do you think that it was just simply that when we were at the booths that people were, we were able to, like I had at my booth I had four yeses, sometimes six. There was literally mm. me and my 12-year-old daughter for a few hours. She came down just to hang out with Dad, yeah? Do you think that, and, and honestly, I'm going to tell you something, my daughter, just from listening to the way I've spoken to people and conversations I've had with Stephen and even people like yourself, and, and when I've talked about it with my wife and things like that, she could almost, and she did, really kind of be able to counteract arguments from the Yes campaigners. So I remember there was a, a situation where we were, were talking, you know, people going, look, I don't know why I'm voting here. I don't know about anything about the Yes. I don't know anything about the No. Go. And then what happens is the Yes campaigners would start their, you know, speeches about, you know, there's racial division already in the Constitution and blah, blah, blah. And then, and I could tim- I could simply turn, and they would cl- cite some stupid clause fifty eight a, you know, where the government has the right to mm. um, select a group of people yeah, right, and then yeah. impose special laws on them. Okay, so like yeah. I'm Maltese, right? So or Maltese Australian, so they could say, oh look, all Maltese people living in Sydney has to be inside by nine o'clock because you're too rowdy. They could, they can do that. They have the power in that. Okay, but. My argument was is that it's not racially based. That I don't I don't particularly agree with that with that rule, but um, that rule we're all even under that rule. So if, if they can actually pick any. It doesn't say Aboriginal people uh, as a as a like an actual um, specification that they can only pick Aboriginal people for a certain curfew. And this is the argument that the yes people were trying to say is that the government can pick out Aboriginal people and say mm. that they're only allowed to do something, like like arguments say they're only allowed to have the in-due card and that's the only way they're going to be able to purchase anything forever in here on in, even the ones who work and all that kind of stuff. They're going to only get their, their, their pay is going to go to an in-due card. They're not allowed to buy alcohol. They're not allowed to buy cigarettes. They're only allowed to buy stuff for the kids and school and food. Um, sure. But what happens is but that that's not what that rule particularly says in the constitution it's it's i i would when my my argument in this particular situation was i said to the yeses does it specifically say abrusers only mm. and he goes well no and i said so then therefore we're all even under the constitutional law that you're talking about and he goes yes so it's kind of like all of a sudden that's kind of like the bomb on hiroshima like boom their whole their whole argument in that particular situation blew up in front of them yeah and um yeah what do you you know like do you think that sorry that that maybe the the class of the no people at the booths was better than the yes um i don't think so because i think they had some very good personnel a lot of them were paid as well yeah so i i think that basically the quality of their argument let them down um, their strategy was wrong, whereas ours, we, we were sort of drilled into staying away from a lot of things discussion-wise and being very focused on our central message. Um, and that, that allowed people that weren't even experienced um, campaigners 
to be very functional. Like even my disabled daughter did yeoman service. Oh, yeah? Um, so, you know, because our message was so clear. Um, and and that, that was what, what prevailed. And, and, yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable that we've got this race um, provision in our constitution. It's not, it's not wonderful, but to get rid of it is, is a major exercise because it's in there. Yeah. Mm. And in a sense, that was, that was part of the argument why we shouldn't just put things in there for the hell of it because that's what happened with this provision. It was put in in 67 almost as some sort of dumb afterthought and now it's, now it's done nothing but cause trouble because mm. it's, it's promoted this propaganda that somehow Australia is a racist country. And that, that was one of the things that I found incredibly offensive about the Yes case. And I still find it offensive because they still keep on talking about how Australia's got this racist underbelly. No, we don't. We're the most tolerant, accepting, um, successful multicultural society in the world. Period. End of story. I'm sick of hearing this sort of nonsense from these people. It's so offensive. And fire it, up, Richard. I've never, I've never heard you fire up like this before. It's good stuff. Well, I mean, it's so annoying. It really is. I completely agree with you, Richard. It's completely untrue. There's no basis for it. If you look at it and you start, you start analysing that whole point of view, it doesn't hold any water. It's just nonsense. Now, like, now had, if, if yeah. we go, if we put this back into a historical, of course, context. Let's. <laughs> No, but based on what you just said, right? So this is this is all riled us up. It's, it's you know, okay, the battle's being won. Well, the next step that we know from history is that Germany went into the Soviet Union, expanded the war. That's right, and it led it led to the Battle of Stalingrad, which was horrific. It was one of the worst battles in the history of humankind. It was savagery and all sorts. Now, of things. Let, let me illustrate the reason why Stalingrad happened. There was a staff officer called General Friedrich von Paulus who had had great seniority. He was on Hitler's staff and he wanted a field command, right, but he had no practical battle experience. So they gave him the command of the 6th Army to take Stalingrad, right? Now, he had the same personality type as Alba. He was promoted by seniority like Alba and he created a great military disaster like Alba has. <laughs> well, this, uh, this, Stalin, Stalingrad was so... Key, key, sorry, I dropped out there for a sec. Stalingrad was so bad that the Germans didn't win another battle from that point. They were pretty much done. True. They gave the Americans a hiding at Kazarine Pass, you know, um, very, very shortly after that. So, but, but, but overall, they were pretty much done. Yeah, they, they still, they, they still um, fought brilliant defensive battles on the Eastern Front for the rest yeah. of the war. Sure. You know? sure. I mean, but, they, they won tactical victories. They didn't win strategic victories. That's but that, but they, but from that moment, they were pushed back all the way back to Berlin. Yep. So, the the, so the question is, if that's how this story goes. What happens to us if, if we're Ooh. on the same path? Ooh. Well, I don't see a Red Army forming anywhere soon. 
So. That's probably. I hope. I hope not, because there was a lot of savagery and and things that came with that. But well, you know, that's what happens with the Russians. If you stir them up, they come after you, and they don't stop until they've destroyed you, like they did with Germany. There's never been a country that's been so completely destroyed, flattened, divided as Germany was. So. Um. So, but do you think that they'll come after us now, obviously with this misinformation, disinformation now, so like now Australia is going to get punished for voting no, that um, mm. that now the next front would be almost like the Russians coming in as being the misinformation, disinformation bill? Well, let me ask you a question, Adam. Don't they seem full of themselves? Who? The, the, um, the left? Sorry? Labor. Don't yeah, they seem they're... full of themselves? Yeah, absolutely. It's sickening. Well, I mean, they, they, they still think that they're geniuses. Yeah. Did, did Labor think that they got voted in by, like, you know, 60% or 70% in the federal election last time? They seem to, yeah. That's that's how they're acting, like. They're yeah. acting cocky. I mean, what was it, 32% or something like that? Yeah. So yeah. it was I only... They're in they're in every parliament on the mainland of Australia, so they're going. This is our chance. Let's let's go for it. That's what I feel. Well, this is our let, moment. Let me give you a, a comparison between being in government in every in every place and a monoculture. What what does a monoculture breed? Disease. Okay. Because there's no there's no diversity. Yeah. Right. Well, I've got, I've got, I've got some a list of questions here, and we can do these rapid fire, or you can expand on them if, if you want. And Adam can probably have a shot at answering some of these as well. Uh, not very good these, these are, these are. Um, I've kind of just let my mind run a bit free here, so there's no, there's no necessary like a, a structure to these. But the first question is, how will history judge Jacinta Nambajimba Price's performance during the referendum? Depends if she becomes prime minister or not. Well, that that leads into my next question, which <laughs> is: What else does Senator Price need to do or need to achieve before she is ready to be prime minister? I think she's probably got a, a fair idea of where she wants to go in a non-Aboriginal sphere in order to create that sort of pre, you know that sort of prerequisite. So. We'll, we'll see, but at the at the moment she's on pretty on, on, still on a learning curve. So I, I think she's got all the time in the world, um, and it's probably not the right time because the way I see it, we're, we're headed towards a minority government, and it's more likely to be Labor than Liberal in post twenty twenty five, and it's not really a great time to be in government. It's it's going to be uh, just a mess, a debacle. And um, however long it goes on, so there won't be any real clear air until until all that that sort of process is done. Um, and a lot a lot of it depends on on how quickly the Labor Party sort of disintegrates into a lot of different factional hostile camps or whatever, and and struggles for you know the crumbs of leadership. Um, but but that that's really where Albanese's um, led, led the Labor Party, and you know we're just we're just seeing maybe the first cracks with the last couple of polls. So um, I want to see more polls before I commit to having a 
uh, a hard view about this, but it's not looking good. Well, anecdotally, just from people who, like I'm obviously the political one, kind of like the real political one in my family, even though I'm kind of like mediocre political. And then they've got, um, you know, That's I was talking to my father-in-law and that. I'm mediocre political. Like, honestly, <laughs> seriously, like, you, you, know, you impress me every time I talk to you. So, oh, that, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Maybe it's just a bit of lack of self-confidence or something in myself. But, um, but anecdotally, right, you know, Today, like three people have said, elbows out. Just people off the street. This is when I'm talking to people or whatever. They've gone, elbows gone. They can't see Albo being the leader of the Labor Party much longer. Mm. Is, do you think that, that you know? It, I know you would talk, you want to see polls and things like that, but you know, are the cracks? And, and anecdotally, like you know, that's pretty good. You know, that's how we all used to communicate back in the dream time, I guess. You know, so you know, if if that's the feel of the street from average people. Well, the compelling evidence so far is the trend. He's managed to destroy all his post-election goodwill and electoral capital in pursuit of this this um, ridiculous referendum. So he's he's done it to himself, but it's it's a question of how much he's actually dam- damaged his own government as well. Um, you know, I, I think Bill Shorten would probably hope that he can sort of. Um, knife Albanese and dispose of him quietly and neatly, and sort of take over and, and move the government onto a different, a different plan. Um, maybe that, maybe that's his idea, but I, I don't think it'll go that well for him. Somehow, I think there'll be there'll be messy, messy bits and pieces that'll get in the way. All right, next question, Richard. What was the bigger miscalculation for Germany? Expecting Britain to sue for peace or invading the Soviet Union? Ooh, definitely invading the Soviet Union. That had much more consequences. Um, I mean, you could say expecting Britain to sue for peace was just a miscalculation. They they simply didn't understand who they were dealing with. Um, and, And it wasn't that far wrong because if Churchill hadn't been around you would have had Lord Halifax as as um, as Britain's Prime Minister, and um, he would have definitely sued for peace. I've lost my screen here, guys. No, that's all right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can see you, so keep looking at the screen. Lost my screen. Well, uh, Adam, you can have a crack at that. If you want, no. I was just going to say because I was, I was read. I've just I was reading an article just before we got on here, and it's from the um, Air and Space Forces magazine. So I think it's an online magazine, oh. and they're saying that you know, before the Battle of Britain, that one of the I'm trying to find it here. I should have highlighted it, but I didn't. Um, that um, they were that one of the one of the leaders I think before Churchill or one of the leaders of England were actually spoke to the Swedish Parliament and yeah, were saying that they would they would pursue. Yeah, Halifax was a, was a German. Well, he wasn't a German sympathizer. He was just he was like he was like a moderate liberal. He didn't really know what he what he was, where he was going, or what he wanted. So and then they would have they would have like taken up any sort of offer. They would have taken up any sort of offer of like um, a peaceful outcome, provided that it was reasonable terms. 
Well, the Germans thought they were offering reasonable terms. They said, we don't want the British Empire. You can keep the empire. We just want to be friends, right? We've got we've got other ideas about where we want to go and what we want to do. It's you know, and they blame this is this is the thing after after the Battle of Britain, they they only blamed one person for their failure, and that was Churchill. And it's it's very similar to the the referendum. It's like after the referendum, the Yes campaigners only want to blame one person, Peter Dutton. Now, uh, what, Peter, what Peter Dutton had to do with it, I have no idea. But you know, he wasn't <laughs> in the front line as far as I could see. I'm gonna I'm gonna play a quick a clip quickly, uh, and then I'm gonna ask a question based on this this clip. Okay. This... I had the occasion to talk to. Oh, hold on. There we go. To him. Oh, Adolf. Any other company? And I told him we will have the opportunity to attack London, and London is covered by fog, and we can. Fly with everything we have available, even with the Junkers 52, like we did in Warsaw. And he said, Stop it, stop it. I don't want to hear this. The whole attack on England is against my opinion, against my willing. I would like, I could stop it. The English population is of such high class and they are so similar to the Germans that I hate. Who was Adolf Hitler? So that that's a uh, this gentleman recounting a personal experience that he had with Hitler at the time. Now, my question is based on that: if if Hitler didn't want war with Britain and Britain had sued for peace, how many lives would have been uh, saved? Well, it's 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 almost not quite the right question. It's like, well, what kind of a world would we have? If Germany had won World War Two, that's that's more that's more the real question here, because if Britain had had not resisted Germany, that's what would have happened. Um, and if if um, I mean there were so many things that were involved, but you got to remember that the Germans were were like the Romans of the modern world. They, their idea was to take human consciousness backwards 2,000 years to a point where we had masters and slaves and they would be the masters and everybody else would be the slaves. And they had a whole, they had a whole plan for that. So, you know, if, if Britain hadn't, hadn't successfully resisted or, you know, even partially successfully resisted, um, then the Germans would have won. And the, the clip you played was Adolf Galland, who was one of Germany's great fighter races. Um, and, um, you know, he had a personal audience with, with Hitler quite frequently. Um, he was basically one of the most insubordinate commanders in, in, the, um, in the whole war. And at the end of the war, he was, he was basically stripped of his rank and, and, and uh, was allowed to fly jets because... They, they needed him as a pilot, but they'd, they, they'd fired him as commander because he kept on upsetting the, the, the overall commanders. Like, you know, Goering asked him what he needed to win in the Battle of Britain, and he said, give me a squadron of Spitfires, which Goering <laughs> was very unamused about. <laughs> so he, he wasn't, wasn't exactly your, your sort of by-the-book kind of guy. So, but but you know his his account of, of Hitler's attitudes 
was 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 correct. Um, Hitler Hitler wanted Britain at least sidelined, if not if not uh, friendly, and he didn't want to fight them at all. So the answer to your question is the biggest mistake the Germans made was, was attacking the Soviet Union because it was a war. It was a war which they needed to win quickly, and they um, and they needed to have a better plan for. And they weren't they weren't up to snuff with their usual preparations. Um, okay, ne- next question that leads into what you just said, uh, or leads from what you just said. Now, there's a there's a clip in The Simpsons. I haven't brought it up, but it's just come to my mind where uh, I think Homer or someone goes to England, and the and the they're saying, oh, uh, you know. We America, we as in America, saved you guys during World War Two, and the British guy turned around and said, "Well, we saved your ass in World War Three. <laughs> but, but the the question is: so there's this prevailing narrative out there that the United States saved the world during World War Two, but did they? Is this true, or was it the Soviet Union that won World War Two? Um. I think it was a combination of the two, um, but without either one, you couldn't have had victory. The Russians supplied the sheer manpower and force and resolve to beat the German army. The Americans provided the weapons, the finance, and 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 the the, the resources to do that. I mean, the Red Army was 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 supplied with you know millions of American trucks. Locomotives, you know, car rations. It's like America. America's industrial capacity won the war. Hmm. Yes. So, it's not. All, it's know. not all about troops and battles. Well, it's, it's a lot of it's about money. You know, that's why the Yes campaign should have won. They had all the money. Yeah. Very good. If Hitler, <laughs> if Hitler had died on August the thirty first, nineteen thirty nine. Would he have been considered as a great leader? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, as as with all benevolent dictators that, that are removed before they become, you know, tyrannical dictators. I mean, bear in mind that the most in, the most efficient form of government is benevolent dictatorship. It's not democracy. Yeah. You know, the only problem with benevolent dictatorship is how do you keep Keep it benevolent, and how do you how do you get rid of the benevolent dictator in a certain time frame? Yeah, that's a bit of a problem. But I mean, business business is run by benevolent dictators. It's not run by by democracy. No, no one has democracy in, in business. That's right, because you have you have the boss calling the shots, and then everyone does what the boss says. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I work I work in factory. I work in in biz, I work for businesses that do the same thing. And as a matter of fact, when I'm working with some, when somebody's working with me, I call the shots and they do what I say. And yeah. um, but the benevolence is if they say, "Oh, maybe if I do it this way, it might be a little bit better," and I'll look at it and go, "Okay, that's a good one, mate. Have a go." Mm. You know what I mean? Don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I always used to have this discussion with my teenage son. You know, it's like this house is not a democracy; it's a dictatorship. How benevolent <laughs> that is is entirely dependent upon you. <laughs> But it's, it's, it is true. Like, I do agree with that because, like, you know, look at China, like, with their dictatorship and, you know. They're winning. Uh, you know, but they, but they, hey, they get stuff done, don't they? Sure. I mean, 
you know, um, you know, Xi Jinping. Capitalism and benevolent dictatorship. Why, why are they winning in, in the world, you know? Yeah. Mm. Everyone's so on the same we, message, you know? We've got to be smarter when we're dealing with, 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 with someone with that kind of clarity and, and resolve. I mean, the Chinese know exactly where they're going. Yeah, they've got a plan. They've got their long plan that they're going to just, you know, they'll buy the country, they'll buy the world out b- yeah. before yeah. blowing it up, I think. Well, they can, they've got a choice. They can do either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, hey, I agree. <laughs> All right. We've got, we've got, um, Graham in the chat just uh, made a, a comment and he said, history is written by the victors. So this leads into my next question. Should the cities of Dresden, Würzburg, and Nuremberg been bombed in the few months before the end of the war? When I say bombed, they were level. Ninety percent of these cities were leveled by incendiary incendiary bombs by British Lancasters and American planes. It was well, right before Germany was meant to. to the, 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 you, you've got to put the responsibility for that onto Air Chief Marshal Harris, who was the head of Bomber Command. And he was a bit like Chris Bowen because he had an idea that Germany could be defeated by area bombing, right? So even though there were, all the evidence pointed to a more efficient use of aircraft would have been in the Battle of the, the Atlantic and hunting U-boats or laying mines in the river systems of Europe to defeat the, the small, the small um, uh, trade, trade uh, custom of, of Europe, but instead, uh, he sent the RAF on all these massive raids on German cities to kill civilians. So it's very similar to Chris Bowen, who thinks that his ideas are so pure and wonderful and good that there's no, there's no, no possible alternative to them. So <laughs> Arthur Harris's nickname was Bomber Harris. So I would say that he is one of the great idiot butchers of, well, of military command history. Um, well, it is it is terrible if you do if you do. You know, my uncle for a start. Yeah. Well, if you hear <laughs> that these cities were largely uh, civilian populations, they had a lot yeah. of refugees, especially like Dresden. Yeah. And when yeah. you hear about these stories, like uh, they, they would bomb them, and then a few, you know, the hours would pass, and the people would come on, out onto the streets and try and find survivors, and then they'd come over and bomb them again, and then they would come and bomb them again. And they just kept bombing them, and. Uh, there was one story. I mean, this, the the stories are horrific, and the Germans did call them terror bombing, and uh, they, 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 the Allies did it to the French too. There was a particular uh, city in France where they were trying to de- destroy yeah. four bridges, and they just kept bombing this French city over and over again because they kept missing the bridges, but they hit everything else. And but one of the stories about I think I'm pretty sure it was Dresden where they they came out after the bombing and they were mm-hmm. trying to find survivors and they saw all these black logs on the road in an intersection and they're like where did these there's no river here they couldn't have washed in from a river where did these black logs come from and they realised ultimately that they were uh, families that had melted into the asphalt from the heat of the fire that was caused from this bombing. So yeah. it was a very, I mean, this is war. There's no good side or bad side. It's it's basically humanity up against a, a, these horrible uh, events. And often innocence is the first casualty of war. But uh, mm. I guess that leads to 
my second last question, and that is, is Winston Churchill a war hero or a war villain? Oh, the Germans definitely thought he was a war criminal. There's, there's no question about that because he had, he had basically ensured that the continuation of, of World War II and, um, and put, um, yeah, again, I, I, I liken the similarity of the way Peter Dutton seems to be attracting the same kind of criticism, being responsible for every bad thing that's happening in our country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good point. That's a good point. <laughs> But, I mean, that goes to show, I mean, what's yeah. that saying? One, one person's uh, terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. It's the... Oh, I don't agree with that. No, I don't agree with that. No? I think, I think Churchill's, Churchill's um, great, great strength was that he had a clarity of purpose. And Britain needed someone who was, who was strong enough and, and almost insane enough to to deny all reality about the fact that they were be- they were actually beaten and to do whatever it took to keep on resisting. And I, th- I think that that's, that's what made him one of the great leaders of history. Well, he that, united the country in a losing battle, right? Yeah, and he also got the Americans to support them with, with finance and yes. all sorts of non, non-neutral sort of aid. I mean, America was, was, was not a neutral country, um, Soon, soon after the Battle of Britain commenced, um, they started lend-lease and, and started giving Britain unlimited credit and secret, secret petrol formulas so they could run their fighters more efficiently and all sorts of stuff. But the thing, the thing that persuaded Roosevelt to do this was not because of, you know, he was a nice guy and he wanted to help out a friend. That wasn't it. He was persuaded by Churchill's decision to attack the French fleet and sink it without mercy in North Africa. Well, yeah, which was which was one of the most ruthless, horrible things that Churchill ever did. And he did quite a few, actually, but you know, and and he was quite he, he because he was so clear about what his purpose was. He was prepared to do whatever it took to to win, effectively. And um, that's that's not very pretty. You know, no. um, and 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 people need to appreciate that often leaders have to be prepared to make very very difficult decisions. And yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think it was because out of cruelty or or, or um, a lack of compassion. I think that probably when he made decisions that were going to, you know, kill lots of innocent people, he would he would quite frequently be noted as weeping and things like that. So he did feel it. He was he was a um, a pretty emotional. No, not at all, not at all. Um, so yeah. Well, I don't know. I learned a lot about. I've learned a lot about you know the Battle of Britain and 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 the war. You know, even just by reading a few articles and stuff like that. You know, I'm, I'm as Graham said. I've seen I've seen the movies. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I learned a little bit about it in school and stuff like that. But there was you know I. It's true that you know um, the victor right his- the victors write history, mm. and you don't see it from both sides. You know, you don't see the story from both sides in an even light. Well, it's like Stephen was just talking about the firebombing of German cities. The Americans actually firebombed Japanese cities far more and killed far more people. But we don't hear about that mm. because the Japanese weren't perceived as a noble enemy mm. in that in that time frame. 
Um, in actual fact, the Americans killed more people firebombing Tokyo than they did in either of the atomic bomb raids. Mm. Yes, that's, that is true. So, so, you know, history is written by the victors, but it's like it's it's not exclusive. You can find out both sides if you if you want to delve into it. And, and in today's information age, I think a lot of the information is much more accessible. Like I, I found out probably a couple of weeks ago, um, they, they, they found... They found the plane of uh, Patterson Hughes, who was the highest scoring ace in the Battle of Britain. He got 18 victories. He was Australian. He was flying in the RAF. But they just found his plane and they're restoring it. Oh, yeah. wow. You know, but no one, no one talks about him because he's dead. Mm-hmm. He didn't survive the war. But he scored 18 victories in, yeah. in like a couple of months. So mostly yes. from fighters. So he would, he would have been amazingly good. So he died in the war, but he, he, quite a quite a quite a ace. But um, yeah. because he died, wasn't even lived to talk about it. They didn't make a movie about him. No, mm. but I mean, you know, he he was probably you know he was the highest scoring ace. He was probably he was probably one of the most skillful. There were probably half a dozen, you know, incredibly skillful guys, um, and he would have been one of them. So you learn things all the time now. Mm. Got a couple of comments that I'll read out and then I'll ask my final question. But we've got uh, Graham watching us from, uh, on, on YouTube. Graham says, The annihilation of civilian cities was no accident. The reasoning is far too detailed for chat. For more detail, look into the history of German banking. So that's an interesting comment. Maybe, uh, maybe Graham needs to call into the show uh, and explain that a little bit further. But uh, we've also got Tony. Uh, she's made the comment, uh, Churchill was considered an outsider among the elite, a bit of a Trump. Well, he did manage to offend almost everybody. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's even a book of all, all the things he said to people, you know, like I can quote a lot of them too, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, my, my, probably my favourite is when a, a woman came up to him and said, Sir, you are drunk. He said, Yes, madam, and you are ugly. But in the morning, I will be sober, and you will still be ugly. <laughs> I mean, you just can't get away with saying anything like that anymore, right? <laughs> I can. <laughs> All right, last question: Did Hitler flee to Argentina? No. No. No, that's rubbish. Yeah, that couldn't have ever been done quietly enough. So. Okay. So, so, Hitler, so Hitler died. So Hitler put the bullet in his head. Yeah. Yeah. He's ch- chomped down on a, a cyanide capsule at the same time a glass one. Okay. At the same time as he fired the revolver. Okay. But his his job was done. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you very much for coming on tonight, Richard. Uh, this was, I mean, I always love talking about history, especially World War II. I'm, I'm constantly researching World War II. And, look, I, I want to get across the point that it's not all glorious and, and and fantastic. A lot of these documentaries you watch, they paint it in that picture. Go and read the accounts of actual soldiers uh, on the battlefield, especially on the on the Eastern Front, and you'll hear some horrific stories that you would never be able to imagine that's what war is. That's the, the suffering of soldiers and, and civilians and uh, everyone. 
that's what war is. And these people that get up on their high horse and they say, I support this country and I support that country and we should go in and invade places, they've got no idea what they're talking about. Humanity must find some way of avoiding war at all costs, in my opinion. I agree totally. Mm. Yeah, no argument from me. My, my wife wants to ask a question, how can history help us? <laughs> well, we should learn from it, right? I think you've just answered that. Well, with the mm. referendum and going forward to mm. future things we might encounter from the left and everything. Do you want to ask the question? Yes, I just okay. did. All right. <laughs> Say it again. Well, how can history help us going forward with um, how to deal with not just the referendum but what else the left might come up with? Oh, well, I think we should learn from history instead of hiding it. That's my that's my personal opinion, like, with, with that kind of thing. I said I don't think that the history that we know is the truth and I don't understand why they have to hide it from us. We should learn from our mistakes and learn from the past to better make a better future. That's my opinion on that. That's how I would answer that question. Hmm. I, had, I had a great history teacher when I was 15 called Robert King and he said, when you write an essay, what I want, what I look for when I scan it is dates and places and names because that's fact, fact, fact. So then I look at causes and effects. If you can get all of that in your essay, you'll get a good mark. It's very clear. So that's what we need to do in terms of educating our young people. We need to educate them about the causes and effects of history and then apply that. To, to a modern context. So, yeah. I agree. Agree. Well, believe it or not, uh, Richard, you've got some very uh, complimentary uh, comments coming through. My my streamyard's running very slow, so I can't seem to to post them. But uh, we've got uh, Tony, who's uh, said, uh, where was it? Uh, excellent podcast tonight. Thanks, Richard. Uh, Graham said, yes, good chat. And Ian said, good chat. Well hosted. Bring Richard back. <laughs> I will be back. <laughs> we'll be back. Don't worry. We'll have to find another. We have to find something else to compare to history. I'm sure there'll be something soon. Oh, I'm sure it's coming. What's going in history for the, the upcoming assassination? Political assassination. Ooh. Okay. Well, we'll leave. We'll leave that. <laughs> We'll leave that for next time. But uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Uh, if you do want to support us, at, uh, you can. You can head to, to buy me a coffee. Well, a coffee. Uh, are, you, are you excited about buying me a coffee, Adam? I might buy you a coffee, mate. I don't me drink too. coffee. but <laughs> I'll take the couple of dollars. Thank you both. Thank, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Adam. It's, it's thank been you, Richard. Long. Thank you. No, it's great. Great to see you again anyway and great to have you on and I'll see you at the next political event that we always bump into each other at. Stephen, yeah. are you going to ask Richard about his um, dream? Oh, yes. Sorry. I forget. I, I, how, could I, how could I forget? Don't forget. Richard, I want to hear this. Richard Storch, final question, our final segment of the ex-candidates. I can't believe I forgot this. We should turn this into a game. This is I, called... This is called Build Your Own Fantasy Government. Now, the idea of the game is that you, Richard Storch, are in charge of the next parliament of Australia and you can choose five or six people 
current politicians, former politicians, experts in a certain field, anyone you like. Some people have been choosing dead people recently to head up the next government of Australia. Who would you choose? Um, if I could have full executive powers as president, me. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets a free bottle of wine, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. We'd have, we'd have a party, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got five or is it just you, you, yourself and I? Oh, I'd have more than five if, I, if it was just me. But um, the, five, the five people I think are the most impressive in Labor, probably Meryl Swanston and Andrew Charlton. Isn't Meryl Swanson the one that that put out a Facebook post saying "vote often," hashtag vote often? She might have. She's not. She's not very restrained, but I, I like her because she's coal miner's daughter and she's not not intimidated. I watched your friend Mark Latham and and Rowan Dean go after her together on Sky wow. once, and she took them both on. She just rolled up her sleeves and. Took them both on. Uh, I admire that sort of fortitude and strength. And Albo obviously does too because he made her the party whip to shut her up. Hmm. So she's very impressive. Um, probably on the Liberal side, Andrew Hasty um, and Jacinda Price. Um, I did like Andrew G before he had his crisis of conscience. Um and and there's there's others as well. There, there are a few. There's probably about I'd say twenty reps that that I would say are worthy of of uh, a lot of respect, and probably about a couple of dozen more that are contending for it. They they need to they need to be a bit more focused. But the rest are basically beneath contempt. <laughs> 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 a very good way of finishing tonight's episode. But look, I hope people enjoyed this one. It was an interesting uh, concept, and uh, and uh, we'll 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 have to think of something else to have you back on in the future, Richard. Because uh, I'd love to do one with you and Sam Bruno. I think that would be in, in a good a good episode. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> we, we we've done we've done our own off off camera. <laughs> work, work, I'm sure, you work, have work, work, workshopping different political strategies. It's it's a very nerdy thing to do. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> that's that's true. Well, look, everyone, please share this one out if you if you've enjoyed it. Uh, it does help us out a lot. Uh, please follow us on all our social media: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, next and tomorrow night, Jamie Coots. He'll be on. Uh, very informative about Bitcoin and just money in general. What is money? What is currency? Uh, talking about fiat currency and all those interesting topics. So I'm looking forward to that one, Adam. I'm sure you'll be, or you will be joining me as usual and um, delving into it. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, thank you very much for watching and we'll see you all next time. Yeah.